Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. In person, we are back inside the building. Lawn Chair Church was great. It was fun. It's over, though. And so we're back inside online. Uh, Of course, we've got the live stream Sunday mornings at 10.30 at faithonhill.com. And you can search Faith on Hill on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe and get all of our online content there, Sunday mornings, and all the podcasts. We are continuing our study in the story of Elijah. So if you have a Bible, open to 1 Kings chapter 18. Well, last week, Elijah had this big showdown with the prophets of Baal. And God was proven true, and Baal and these false idols were proven to be false. Deceivers, liars. Now, it hadn't rained remember, in three years. And after all this is done, Elijah says to King Ahab, go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. So in faith, Elijah says, hey, we've done what we needed to do. I believe this is the time when God is going to send the rain. So he has this great moment of faith. And he says to Ahab, hey, go and, go and have dinner. It's going to rain soon. So he gets up on the top of Mount Carmel and he just starts to pray. And he bent down to the ground and he told his servant, go and look to the sea, verse 43. And he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. And the seventh time the servant reported a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. Now, There was nothing special or magical about the seven times, right? In Jewish thought and culture, seven is a complete number. It's a fullness idea. The idea is that in the fullness of God's time, the cloud appeared. You know, you could say, oh, well, you know, we have to pray seven times. We have to march around the city seven times. We have to do things. No, not necessarily at all. In, in In the book of Judges, Israel was going up against this city. And they were defeated. And they prayed, and God said, go up against the city. And they were defeated. And the third time they prayed, and God said, yeah, go up against the city. And they had victory. That was three times. They didn't need to go up against the city seven times. There are times when God says, hey, I want you to do this. And you just keep going, and you keep going, and going. The idea is just not so much about the number seven. It's about the completeness, the fullness of time. You've been praying for something. You've been working towards something. You've been faithful in something. You're saying, God, when are we going to see this? When is it going to come about? It seems like everything is going against us, and yet we know we're doing what you want us to do. When it is his time, God will do it. God waited three years until he dealt 
with Ahab from the start of Elijah until the three years were up. And now Elijah's praying and waiting, and he keeps sending his servant, go and look out to the sea from the top of the mountain and see if you see anything. Nope, nothing. Keep going. The seventh time, hey, there's a small cloud. Now, obviously, the cloud itself is not as small as my fist, but, you know, from a distance, and they would have understood that from a distance, that's about how it looked. But it was the beginning of something. You know, sometimes when we're waiting on the Lord and then all of a sudden something small starts to happen and we go, oh, is this it? And sometimes we're afraid to really trust that God might be doing his work. But Elijah says, all right, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Here's another moment of faith. There's just a small cloud, but it's the first one anyone has seen in a long time. It's coming off the sea. Get going, Ahab. Everything is so dry that the moment it starts raining, it is going to turn to mud. We had rain in the Portland area the other week, and we were camping, and we had to come home early, or we decided to, because there was all of a sudden rain in the forecast. So we, we packed up our, our tent and our camping gear, and as we were coming down I-84 back to Portland, it started to rain. And you go, oh, okay, well, good. The weatherman was right, and we made the right call leaving our campsite and not getting rained on, because who wants to get rained on, especially in the middle of the summer? But we needed to stop, and so we stopped at a gas station in Troutdale, and I got out, and there is that smell. It's not a pleasant smell, but there's that smell of all the oils and, and grime that's on the ground, and it rains for the first time, and it's like, ooh, that doesn't smell good. When there's, the ground is hard and dry and the rain comes, it takes a while to soften it up. And so it just pools and it turns to mud and it doesn't absorb it. Places like Ukraine, in the, in the spring, everything thaws. And that's why there, there was kind of a pause in the war because you couldn't do much. It, it turned to mud and, and there was no moving. It's just impassable unless you're on a road. Hey, get going. That's a step of faith. There's a cloud but Elijah's warning Ahab, if you don't get going now, you're, never, you're not going to be here. You're going to be here a while because you'll be stuck in the mud. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds and the winds rose and a heavy rain started falling and Ahab rode towards Jezreel. That's where he had his home. The power of the Lord came to Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. So, you know, they, they didn't wear pants back then. They wore cloaks and, and, you know, tunics. And so, you know, this whole thing about girding your loins, you might have heard that expression. But the idea is they would take the long lengths of their cloak and they would sort of tie them up and it kind of looked like a sumo wrestler's diaper. And you, then if you needed to run or fight, you'd, you'd kind of tie everything up. And that way you could, you know, nothing's getting in your way. And so he girded up his loins and he started running and he outran the chariot. Now, it could be that he outran the chariot because he was able to go a faster way on foot. The chariot maybe had to stick to a road. Um, and, or maybe it was just a, a miraculous thing that God gave him speed miraculously. I, I couldn't tell you. Um, but in chapter 19, verse 1, it says that Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not Make your life like one of them. So Elijah is going back to Jezreel. And you know what? I could see him thinking, man, this is it. 
Ahab has seen the power of God. He is going to turn back to the God of Israel. So he runs ahead to the, where the capital is, and he's there, and he gets this message from the queen, I'm going to kill you. And it says in verse 3 that Elijah was afraid and ran for his life, and when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, so he flees, he goes south this time, before he had gone east and then north, but now he's going south into the kingdom of Judah, he leaves his servant somewhere where he will be safe and taken care of. And then he goes a day's journey into the wilderness. <clears throat> and he came to a broom brush and sat under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he laid down under the brush and fell asleep. So what's happened is this. He's had this great victory. The people have turned back to God. They killed the prophets of Baal. He, the king has seen all of these things. And then he gets a message, I'm going to kill you from the queen. And he runs and he flees and he says, Lord, take my life. I can't go on. I don't have any more strength. I have a theory. It's a theory, but I think I'm right. That what's going on is that Elijah had an idea about what would happen God told him, this is what I'm going to do. God told him, go to Ahab, do these things, and this is what I'm going to do. And then Elijah made assumptions about what would happen after that. And I say this both from personal experience and from personal observation of others' experience, that people do this. God says, I want you to go over here. And then we start to build up these ideas of what over here looks like. God says, I want you to do this thing. And we start to build up these expectations about what will happen when we do that thing. And people say, oh, I can't believe that God did that. Did God tell you he was going to do that? No. What did God tell you? No, just go do that thing. Then that's all that God said. He didn't tell you anything else. Why are you blaming him for this? And yet I've done that. Maybe you've done that. Elijah certainly is guilty of that at this moment. And so he just prays, Lord, kill me. I can't go on anymore. And all at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and laid down again. And then the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for your journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and he was strengthened by the food, and he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave, and he spent the night. Get up, eat and drink, for the journey is too much for you. And it was. Elijah was just a person like you and me. Elijah was just somebody who had surrendered themselves to God and prayed. Elijah was just somebody who had surrendered themselves to God and did what God told him to do. And yet it was too much for him. Just as it will be too much for me and for you. Because we cannot do these things in our own strength. Where does his strength come from? It comes from the power and the provision of God. It could be that this is just an angel appearing to Elijah. But oftentimes, there is an indication that it's Jesus himself making an appearance. It's what's called a Christophany. I tend to think that's what's happening here. I can't prove it, but I won't be surprised if I get to heaven and I find out that's what it is. The journey is too much for you, so get up and eat and drink and be strengthened. 
living as a Christian is too much for us. Living as a Christian is too much for us. To live in the ways of God is too much for us. To live as faithful witnesses in a, in a world that rejects God is too much for us. To do what God has called us to do is too much for us. We can only do it by being strengthened, strengthened in the power of God through the Holy Spirit. Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? In the book of Acts, chapter 2, they are waiting as Jesus commanded, and it says that the Holy Spirit descended upon those original believers, and they got up and they worshiped God, and they preached, and the church was birthed. And as the church spread, they got to this one town, and they said, hey, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? And they said, we didn't even know that was a thing. See, they believed in Jesus, but they hadn't received the fullness of God. Were they saved? Were they going to heaven? Yes, I believe so. But were they living as a Christian with one hand tied behind their back? Also true. Saying the filling or the baptism of the Holy Spirit can have a lot of baggage. If you grew up in a certain kind of church, it means one thing. If you grew up in a different kind of church, it means another. I believe this. I believe that God the Holy Spirit, equally God with the Father and with the Son, is moving and working in the lives of Christians everywhere to this day. I do not believe that anything that happened in the Bible couldn't happen right here and right now. I believe that God is still changing people's lives and filling them with the power that comes from his Holy Spirit. Do I believe in miracles? Yes. Do I believe that there are still prophetic words given to the church? Yes. Now, of course, they have to be checked by Scripture, and they have to be checked by the, the receiving of the church. All of that's true. But I believe that all of those things are still happening. I believe that God is still changing people's lives and turning people from hate to love, from bitterness to forgiveness, from from being in the bondages of sin to being victorious and overcoming. The journey is too much for Elijah, just like the journey is too much for us, and our only hope is to be fully dependent on the power of God's Holy Spirit. Friends, that is why I feel so bad for people that try to live a Christian life on their own strength. They try to live a Christian life just by like, you know, I'll, just, I'll try this thing out you will always falter and fail because none of us can do it. The journey will be too much for all of us. And so there he was refreshed and strengthened and he was given provision to take with him and he goes on this journey to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now where and what is Mount Horeb? There's different opinions about this, although it's generally thought that Horeb is a different or another name for Mount Sinai. And if you uh, checked out the 20-minute Bible study podcast when we were going through the book of Exodus. Mount Sinai is where Moses took the people of Israel after the Red Sea, and they went to Mount Sinai, and it was there that they were given the Ten Commandments and the law, and God made a covenant with Israel to be his, they, I will be your God, you will be my people. It's thought that Mount Horeb is a different name for the same place, or uh, another thought that um, People like uh, Abraham Ben Ezra, who was a, a very notable Jewish uh, Bible commentator, uh, said that it's maybe a different peak on the same mountain system. Kind of like here in Oregon, you know, we have the sisters, and it's the same kind of massif, but there's different peaks. Each one is named different things. Uh, that also happens in places like Mount Everest, where there's Mount Everest, and then off to the side, there's, uh, there's another mountain. His name's escaping me right now. Um, because I know it in the uh, Nepalese, but I don't know, you know the English kind of alliteration of it. But 
but the idea is the same thing. In fact, what will happen is sometimes people will uh, go up Mount Everest, they'll come down, and since they're already acclimatized, they'll go up the other one too, just since they're there. Um, it's a different point, but it's kind of on the same overall mountain. So either Mount Horeb is just another name for Mount Sinai, or it's another name for what's now called Mount Willow, uh, which is a different peak in the same mountain system. Either way, the idea is this. Elijah has a, just a total crisis of faith. But think about what Elijah did. In his crisis of faith, where did he go? This is somewhere where I want to applaud him. I think he gets a little bit of a bad rap here. Some of it's deserved. But where does he go? First, he goes to Judah. He goes to where there are still people faithful to God. He digs deeper. And then what does he do? Okay, there's another crisis of faith. First, he goes to Judah. That's a good, good choice. You go where the people of God are. You go where there's safety. And then he goes away into the wilderness. And there God deals with him directly. And he's filled with the Spirit. And he goes to where it all started. The mountain of God. The place where God spoke to the people. The covenant happened. He's trying to dig deep and root out what is going on. Is, is there a place for doubt in, in a Christian's life? Is there a place for doubt and for questions and for uncertainty in the church? I agree with the philosopher Blaise Pascal who said this, if there is no room for doubt, then there is no room for us. If there's no room for doubt, if there's no room for uncertainty, if there is no room for uh, questions and things that I don't understand, if there's no room for mystery, then in the church there's no room for me. And maybe you feel the same way. But there is a difference between uncertainty and questions and doubt. Doubt is like an active unbelief. It is an active, que not questioning, like it's fine to ask questions. I ask questions all the time. It's the difference between cynicism and skepticism. It's the difference between saying, I want to check and double check that and, and just assuming the worst. Those are two different things. He wants to go back to the very beginning, to where it all started. He's trying to root out what is going on in his life. It says he got there, he went into a cave, and he spent the night. And then the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah, he's saying, hey, what's going on? Let's get to this. Let's dig in. Let's work through this. And he replied, I've been very zealous for the, zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword, and I'm the only one left. And now... They are trying to kill me too. Now remember, he's not the only one left. We know this. But because he keeps clinging on to this false narrative, it's digging false fear and doubt, sowing it into his life. And so that needs to be rooted out. And so the Lord says, go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, and the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Why are all these things happening? An earthquake, a fire, a wind. Because I believe Elijah's looking for those things. And there are times where that is how God works. God led the children of Israel through the wilderness with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God led the people in miraculous ways, when the Holy Spirit first descended in Acts chapter 2, it was with tongues of fire over their heads. There are times where the only way to know is that God's power is present and active and moving. 
And then there are times where it is still and silent because after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went and stood at the mouth of the cave. The Lord was in the whisper. He was in the quiet. He was in the stillness. What are you doing here? The voice said to him. And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. And the Israelites have rejected your covenant and torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And anoint Elisha son of uh, Saphat from Abel Menholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. And what is God saying there? He's saying, first of all, Elisha, your work's not done. Your work's not done. I still have a plan and a purpose for you. And there are many in the church who see this as a great failure on Elijah's part. They say, oh, look at the great faith that Elijah had. He told the king, the rain is coming when there was no clouds. He told the king, you better get going because you'll be stuck in the mud when the, when the cloud was only the size of a man's fist. What great faith he had. He went to Jezreel assuming that the work would continue. And then he falls into fear, the failure of fear. And I've heard this message preached over and over again. But let me tell you this. I don't know whether Elijah was wrong or right, but I know God was gracious to him. There are those who suspect that Elijah might have been manic or bipolar. That's encouraging to me. People who are non-neurotypical, people who have uh, challenges in their mental health are not unusable by God. If Elijah really was bipolar or manic, he's one of the most influential and important and consequential prophets in the Bible, and consequently, he's one of the most consequential people in the history of humanity. And many suspect that he had challenges with his mental health. That's encouraging. And God was not done with him. Just because he had to work through some stuff, just because he had to process things, just because he had to what, what people like to call deconstruct in our modern time, just because he had to go through that process, it does not mean God was done with him. God still had a plan. And God is speaking directly to his fear. God is speaking directly to the false narrative, the false story that he's been telling himself. How do we know that? Because he repeats it multiple times. He says, I did all the things. Your people have rejected you. I'm the only one left. And God's like, no, you're not. No, you're not. Go anoint that guy. I have work for him. Go anoint Jehu. I've got to work for him. Elijah's going to take over your work. You're, just because you're feeling like your time is done, it's not done. I've got stuff for you to do. And when you're gone, I'll have other people do my work. And I've got 7,000 people. You keep telling everybody that you're the only one left. Obadiah told you that he had, you were 100 people were that had not abandoned me. There were others. God says, I've got 7,000 people who have never once bowed down to the false gods, who have never defiled themselves. You're saying you're the only one left. It's not even close. But I have this work for you to do. You're not done yet. 
There are moments in our life of great faith where we stand firm. We, we say to the Ahabs, the rain is coming. And then there are moments, or maybe it's not even moments, maybe in this area of our life we are able to have great faith, but in this area of our life we struggle. And yet God is gracious. And when we're lying beneath the bush and we, all hope is lost, God comes and sends provision and says, this is too much for you. Let me strengthen you. And when he is there hiding out in his cave, having his little pity party, what does God do? Does God slap him around? Does God rebuke him? No, he doesn't come in the earthquake or the fire or the wind or the storm. He comes with a gentle whisper. And he speaks truth to Elijah. Hey, your story that you're telling in your little pity party is not true. I have 7,000 who have not bent their knee. I've got these people over here who are going to do work, and I still have a work for you. We have such a gracious God who is still calling and working and moving. You know what? Maybe you were at a place in your life of great faith, and now you find that, you know what, it's waned, and I'm not in a place of, I'm not in a good place now. Don't think that God's done. You may not be in a good place, but that doesn't mean that God can't bring you back and that God doesn't have work for you. You may be older. You get the sense here that Elijah is older and he's tired and he feels like he's at the end of his days. And God's saying, hey, let me strengthen you because I have work for you today to do. Maybe you're older and you feel like, I don't know. I'm worried about what's going to happen when I'm gonna, gone. I was talking to a friend of mine, a godly man who I respect, who's in his 80s. He's in his mid-80s. I love this man. He loves Jesus so much, and he, and he has such a, a humility. And he was telling me how worried he is for the world and his children and his grandchildren. And I said to my friend, hey, man, don't worry. We'll be here. We'll be doing what the Lord wants. And he kind of paused for a minute and said, yeah, you're right. Because you know what? Elijah won't be there forever, but Jehu and Hazael and Elisha, they will do the work that God has for them. It wasn't dependent on Elijah. It is too much for us, but we aren't alone. We could look around and we could say, oh my goodness, is there anyone who's still faithful to God in this day, in this age? And God is saying, of course there is. There are people you don't even know about who are on the same journey as you are. And I still have plans for you. And it doesn't matter if you are finding yourself in a crisis. It doesn't matter if you find yourself in a cave of doubt and despair the gentleness of God calls us back, strengthens us, restores us, and brings us back into a place of useful service for his purposes. If you're not a believer, this world's passing away. If you're not a believer, God wants to call you in and, and bring you and let you know him and his goodness. And if you are a believer and you're in a season of struggle or storm or doubt or fear, you're deconstructing, you're trying to figure things out, know that God is patient and loving and gentle and he is speaking to us and he is strengthening us if we will just respond to him. I'm so thankful that God doesn't leave us on the shelf. God has great plans and purposes for us. God has a way of bringing about restoration and renewal that we couldn't even dream of. And I'm thankful that Elijah went through these things so that we can be strengthened and encouraged as we hear his story. God bless you. We'll see you next week, 10.30 a.m. We'll see you this week in the small groups and the podcasts and all that. All we'll see you. God.